Lord, we pray that we would encounter you, that we would find you to be a warm and welcoming God who embraces all who will run towards you, that, Father, you are at the same time holy and distant and yet at the same time near and present and friendly. And, Father, I pray that we would understand this morning how the gospel brings those two things together not in an abstract way, but in a very practical way. And that, Lord, somehow we would consider how, as a church, we might bring those two things together, that you are transcendent, that you are holy beyond comprehension, and yet at the same time near and close to the brokenhearted. And, Lord, we pray that we would be a place like this church that is devoted to these things and yet at the same time sees people in conversation with Jesus asking questions, bringing their doubts, bringing their skepticism. And would you work through us to move all of us closer to you, that we would encounter you in a real way. Father, would you do that now as we consider this passage? And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I grew up in church. Many of you that know my story um, know that I grew up in a, a Baptist home. And we talked a lot about engaging other people uh, with the message of Uh, the gospel and talking to people about Jesus, but I wasn't really sure how to do that. And we didn't talk really a great deal about how to do that practically speaking. We listened to stories about missionaries and how they were taking the gospel to new people, but it seemed very far out. It seemed very abstract. My um, only real experience in evangelism growing up was, I remember this distinctly like it was yesterday, we were standing in line in a movie I was with my parents and my brother, and I kind of tugged on the coat of the person that was standing in the popcorn line in front of me, and I asked them, do you know Jesus personally? You know, that probably doesn't happen a whole lot, but being that it was Alabama, they said yes. And so I, I moved on and thought I had done a good work for Jesus that day, um, and, and maybe I had. But I, that was all I knew about evangelism, is that you, in kind of strange encounters, sometimes bring up Jesus and that he works through that. Um, then I got to college, and I was involved in a, a campus ministry that had a little bit more aggressive idea about what evangelism looked like. And so we would go on these training projects and training events that involved us going two by two into public places and engaging people uh, in a conversation about Jesus and a conversation about eternal things. And strangely, they weren't often that keen about, you know, not doing what they were doing and and taking 10 minutes out of their shopping or their sitting on the beach or whatever and talking about eternal matters. Um, But I found my heart drawn because I, I really believe that Jesus was beautiful and lovely and that there was truth there. And I wanted other people to experience him. It wasn't that I wanted to convince people. I wanted them to see Jesus. And the people that I felt most strongly about were people that were close to me. They were, they were friends. They were family members. And I, I got the idea that this kind of drive-by approach wasn't really going to work with my close friends and with my family. Now, um, and I also realized that a lot of the questions that they had had more, not of their objections had more to do with their experience with the church and perhaps bad relationships in the past, bad experiences, rather than problems with Jesus particularly. And so I was kind of at a loss. How do I, as a college person, begin to engage people and be truthful to Jesus and, and invite other people in without being offensive, without being weird? Um, now, 
I came across a writer, uh, Francis Schaeffer, at that point. And here's a guy, I didn't know much about him. He was kind of big in the 70s and 80s. But the only thing I knew about him is that he had a long gray ponytail, and he wore knickers and white socks, and he lived in Switzerland and invited all of the doubters and skeptics around Europe to come and enter into conversation with him. And I was intrigued by that because here was a person that seemed to have a very deep understanding of who Jesus was, but at the same time could just as quickly talk about Kant or Descartes or Nietzsche and weave in conversation. And I was intrigued. I wanted to be able to do that. And what he realized, because his, his daughters and his son would bring home people from their university experience around, uh, around Europe, people that were doubting, people that were skeptical, but had some kind of interest in engaging the truth. And so they would bring their friends home on holiday and on weekend, and Francis would talk to them late into the night. And he began to see that what these people are searching for is they don't want simply the propositions. They don't want simply for me to talk to them, but they want to engage in a relationship. They want to engage in a conversation. And they want to ask questions inside of community. And so he started, he and his wife Edith started Labrie, which is the shelter, a safe place to enter in, to belong to a community, to have your concerns, your questions, your skepticism, not belittled, but answered honestly and answered with great charity. Now, this was very transformational for me because I understood more of a confrontational way of doing evangelism. And what Schaefer helped me to see is there's another way. There's a third way. There's a, an engaging, relational, friendly, friendly way to talk about who Jesus is. And this is the one of the big reasons that I entered into pastoral ministry, that I came to Portland, is to try and figure out, is there a way that we can create a, chur- a church that has a very deep well, that believes something very specifically about Jesus, that believes wholeheartedly that he represents the truth, that there's a deep well there, but that there's a low wall, that it's easy to get in, that it's easy to come in and investigate who Jesus is, that we would be committed to historic Orthodox Christianity and yet be welcoming, yet be friendly, yet be inviting to the outsider. Now, this is exactly what we see in this passage, that here is a church early in the Christian experience that understood this, that there is a deep well, but there's also a low wall, that there weren't high barriers for everyone to, as for them to consider Jesus. They didn't have to jump over a huge wall. They didn't have to adopt certain cultural things, that they could come in and belong at some level, even before believing. The community was a bridge and not a barrier. Now, a bit of background here. Part of the passage that we didn't read is Peter's long sermon in chapter 2, where he talks about the Old Testament. He summarizes the whole work of redemption and says, it has come to fruition now in the person of Jesus, in this church. And we, talk, we reference this sermon a great deal when we talk about baptism, because he uses some of the exact same language that the Old Testament did for circumcision and applies it now to baptism. And he gives this great sermon, and it says 3,000 came to faith that day. 3,000 were added to their number. Now that's preaching at its best. People were responding, hearing the word preached, and they were saying, I want to be a part of that. Now that's one particular way in Acts 2 that 
that the writer Luke talks about people coming to faith. But then here in the passage that we read is a different experience. It says that he gives characteristics of a healthy church. He talks about the primary gathering of the church, the public gathering, and then that that same group of people then met additionally in homes, that they left the public gathering, but they didn't leave the church. The church just simply gathered in a different way during the week. And he gives a list of characteristics of what this church looked like, what this church devoted itself to. And it says that the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So two different ways here are presented in Acts 2. There's preaching, there's the public gathering, and then there's people that leave that public gathering and take the church into their homes, take the gospel into their private lives, into their daily lives, and that it is through that way as well, not just simply through the public proclamation, but it is through you and I in our daily lives living out the gospel, living out what it means to be a follower of Jesus, and that the Lord added daily to the, to the number of those who are being saved. Now, we're going to look quickly at the characteristics that Luke highlights here. What are the characteristics of a church that gathers and then scatters, and that God uses those characteristics, uses the health of that church to bring others in, to welcome newcomers into the faith? There's four of them. There's probably more. There's different ways you could split this, but four as I see of them that I want to talk about this morning. First of all, there's upreach. There's upreach. It says they were an awful church. Not awful as in terrible, but awful in the old sense of the word. That they were awestruck. That they were full of awe. That the apostles were doing miracles and signs. And that everyone that saw them was awestruck. Now the miracles were not important in and of themselves. They were important in what they signified and what they pointed to. That the apostles were giving these amazing powers to speak in other tongues, to heal people. And it wasn't just so that people could be healed, but it was so that they could be validated as those truly representing the risen Christ. And those people that saw them were awestruck. They were filled with awe by God's work. They knew that Jesus had been crucified and yet risen and in a tangible way in an identifiable way, was still at work in and through their community. It says they gathered regularly in a public way, in a large group way. They gathered in the temple, but that they also gathered in the homes. And it was in those two contexts that they were awestruck, that they were full of awe by God's word, by God's work. But instead of terror and fear and running away from God, that holiness, that Eminence, that, that amazing extravagance of God drew them in. It was inviting. It was welcoming. Now, there are many purposes for our worship on a Sunday morning. There are many purposes for gathering in community groups as we do as an application of this passage. But primarily, it's so that you and I can encounter Jesus, that we can be awestruck with who he is and the way that he is still at work. There's upreach. One of the characteristics of a healthy church is upreach. It worships. It is awestruck by God. But there's also inreach. There was something about this, how this fellowship understood the radical care of Jesus and his love that enabled them that 
to realize that everything they had was a resource for extending that love and care to other people. Verse 44, they had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, there's a variety of interpretations to this passage historically in the Christian church that range from some Christian economic communalism to uh, the Christian leaders of the church being uh, uh, entrusted with all of the resources of the private individuals. I kind of prefer that one. I think that one is really the true one, you know. Let, let me control all the resources of the church. But no, elsewhere in, in Acts, the wealthy sell their possessions when a need arises. There's never a presumption that when you enter in the church that you liquidate all of your assets and they become put in some kind of holding uh, company for the use. But, but we shouldn't take comfort too quickly. Because what this verse does mean, in the very least, is that as you get engaged with the church, if you are a Christian, that you will see your resources through the lens of your belonging to a particular community. And this is what that entails, that as it concerns the assets that are under your control, that there will be an ongoing bias towards the needs of others and away from your own needs toward the concerns of others, that the resources that you and I hold in our possession, that we are stewards over, are given to us, and we are to see them through the lens of our belonging to a particular community, through the lens, through the bias towards other people. The gospel turns us outward. It looks at the resources that we have with other people in mind. In the mid-300s, the Roman emperor Julian was trying to return the empire to its Hellenistic religious roots. Uh, if you remember from your high school history class, Constantine had made Christianity the, the um, law and the, the religion of the empire. And he wanted to kind of withdraw that royal patronage and return the empire to its Hellenistic religious roots. Now, in order to diminish, to put down, to belittle Christianity, he had an interesting idea. He said, imitate the Christians. Imitate them in their care for strangers, in their care and their concern for outsiders. He says this, why do we not observe that it is the Christians' benevolence to strangers, their care for the graves of the dead, and the pretended holiness of their lives that have done the most to increase atheism? That's what he calls Christianity, is atheism. For it is disgraceful that when no Jew ever has to beg and the impious Christians support not only their own poor, but ours as well, all men see that our people lack aid from us. Teach those of the Hellenic faith to contribute to public service of this sort. When he looked at the Christian community, he was at awe over how they cared not only for those that were in their midst, but those outside as well. And he said, if we want to grow as a contrary religion, we need to imitate that. We need to care for, we need to out-care for ours and for those around us than the atheists, the Christians. There is upreach, there's worship, there's also inreach, there's caring for the needs of others within the church. That you and I, if we are a Christian and part of in-town, are called to see the concerns, the needs, the material concerns of those within this community as ours to, to bear, as our burdens to shoulder, 
There's upreach. There's inreach. And there's also downreach. Downreach. This sharing that went on in this Acts community was not enforced, but it was voluntary. It was something that the participants wanted to do. They were glad to share. And this only happens when the gospel begins to take root deeply in your life, when you begin to learn about what Jesus has done for you, when you begin to learn about what it says to be a Christian and belong to his church, there must be significant downreach, significant learning. It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, two things about this. They devoted themselves to teaching. What does this look like? As I alluded to earlier, the wall to get in was not high, it was low. But the well, there was a depth of understanding, a depth of gospel awareness, a depth of theology to plumb for the rest of your life. The wall was easy to get over, get through, but the well was deep once you got there. Now this would be, it would be very tough if this, the truth that they embodied, the teaching of the apostles that they lived out, if that created a defensive posture, if that created a high wall, a fortress, it would be difficult to say at the same time that people were added to their number day by day. The church seemed open. It seemed to welcome new people. And, but at the same time, it wasn't just a community of friends. It wasn't just a community where they got together and sang songs and did very little uh, theologizing, very little learning. When you came into the community, the well was deep. You came in easily, but once you got in, you had to change. Everyone changed. Everyone, when they began to encounter Jesus, saw their idols upended, saw ways that they still had not appropriated the faith, ways that they saw that they were living in contrary to the teaching of Scripture. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They wanted to be changed. They wanted to learn to share, to be remade in the image of Jesus, to see their lives taking the shape of Scripture. It needs to be both. The wall needs to be low, but also the well needs to be deep. That when you come inside, that you begin to wrestle with something that will utterly change you and reshape you. Secondly, this, proposes, this presupposes an authentic and a humble posture. It says in verse 46, they had sincere hearts. They had simple hearts. They understood the gospel. They understood the implications of it. They weren't self-deceived, but were honest about who they were. They were honest about what the gospel said about them, that they were people who were deeply, deeply in need of grace. So there was an authenticity, a willingness to let others into their community, a willingness to invite others into their lives. There was no need to cover up anymore because the gospel had uncovered everything. If you believe the gospel that says you were dead in your sins, that there was nothing in your life that merited God's attention, once you believe that, then it's okay to open up. It's okay to let people see who you really are. And that creates a warm and welcoming family. It creates a warm and welcoming home. It creates a warm and welcoming community group and a warm and welcoming church. This was the place where people could come in and say, I am beat. I am sunk. I am tired. I am scared. And not be belittled, but be welcomed. Be invited into conversation about how the message of hope 
the grace of Jesus can begin to enter into those fears, enter into those burdens, enter into that tired life that seems to be going nowhere. The gospel had uncovered them so they didn't feel the need to cover themselves anymore. One of the most apt analogies or comparisons between a warm and welcoming community is the local bar, which is a very apt analogy for Portland. I heard this said, this quote uh, by a writer said, the neighborhood bar is possibly the best counterfeit there is for the fellowship Christ wants to give his church. It's an imitation, dispensing liquor instead of grace, escape rather than reality, but it is a permissive, accepting an inclusive fellowship. It is unshockable. It is democratic. You can tell people secrets and they usually don't tell others or even want to. The bar flourishes not because most people are alcoholics, but because God has put into the human heart the desire to know and to be known, to love and to be loved. And so many seek a counterfeit at the price of a few beers. Now, this is not to talk neg- negatively about any of the great institutions in our city that serve liquor. But what we're going for is not simply a drink. It's for community. It's because we want to be known and we want to know other people. And if the local bar gets this, <laughs> if the local pub is accepting and unshockable and welcomes any who will come in, why can the church not do that? Why can the church not excel at that? If the gospel is at the center that says you are more deeply sinful than you could ever imagine and yet more deeply loved and accepted than you could possibly hope, if that's at the center, how could we not exceed the local bar, any other community for that matter, at being accepting, at being loving, at being welcoming? There is awful upreach. There is altruistic inreach, and there's authentic downreach. And when those two, three things come together, there's, there's a fourth characteristic. There's outreach. There's outreach. If you watch ESPN, if you watch sports shows and so forth, they talk about impact players. These are the type of players that can change the scope of a field. They can change the way that the game takes shape. They're impact players. By their, by their very being on the field, they change the way that the defense has to align itself. They change the strategy of the other team. Impact players change the direction and outcome of the game. And what my prayer is, is that in town becomes an impact church. In verse 47, it says that they were praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day, those who were being saved. They had a well-mobilized, high-impact laity. That it wasn't just the professional ministers that did ministry. It talks about the apostles, but then it talks about everyone scattering into daily life. And it was in those contexts that the Lord added to their number. Now, Steve and I have talked a great deal about this. How do we, as professional ministers, how do we that kind of do the performance on Sunday morning create a culture that it is not just us up here performing and you guys listening? One of the ways we've tried to counter that is through our liturgy that is participatory. And another is by having other people take part in, in, in very particular ways up front, that they participate, that you guys have a chance to lead up front as well. But it's not just 
us leading and you guys following. It is that we have different callings and that we, as a whole church, with our very diverse gifts, are trying to be an impact church. What is clear in the passage is that this entire church was sacrificing not to put the resources in the hands of the professional clergy. That didn't really even exist in those days. And then entrusting them with outreach. But instead, they gathered weekly in order to be scattered into their daily life, into the surrounding neighborhoods during the week. They gathered weekly to grow deep in the apostles' teaching, but then scattered in order to embed themselves into real relationships, real friendships with people outside the community of, the faith, of faith. What I've begun to realize is my ideas of evangelism has shifted from those early days of talking to someone in the, in the movie line, which is fine, um, to now what the church has historically called evangelism is less about getting people to convert and more about walking alongside people so that they can witness Christianity in a real life, in a real community. It's, not a, it's, a, it's a proposing of Christ inside a trusting friendship rather than the imposing of Christ by words alone. There are times where if you're a Christian that you may be called upon with a stranger in just an impromptu setting to be called upon to talk about Jesus. That happens from time to time. But most of the time when people come inside, when the Lord adds to the number of the church, it's because one of you or myself has embedded them, their, themselves in a real friendship with someone. And over the long haul, there's conversation about what's important and what is real and what is eternal. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you're looking in from the outside, you're wondering if this is the place to find truth and to find something is real. The church has a lot to apologize for, frankly. Not only how we have failed often to take your concerns um, and critiques seriously, but also for our sometimes heavy-handed efforts at evangelism and outreach. Jesus, however, makes himself known not by coercion or imposition, by, but by entering into vulnerable relationships with his creatures. And we hope that you will get a sense of that at in town, that Jesus is wildly holy, that he, is, that he deserves our awe and deserves trembling, and yet at the same time, he welcomes and he befriends you. That in town might be a safe place to belong, even if you haven't yet believed everything. So those are a couple of characteristics of this type of church that God adds to their number, that cares for the outsider. But we ought to talk about quickly how. How do we become that type of church? Because it's fine to have a list of characteristics, but how do we do it? How do we become people that want to live in that way? It says that they devoted themselves that they were persistent in a couple of things. First of all, how does a church become a place with a deep well and a low wall where people are willing to investigate, where people come to faith? Let me give you something completely unprecedented, completely groundbreaking. It's prayer. <laughs> it says that they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread and prayer, and the Lord added to their number daily indicates that this vision of being a church for other people doesn't happen just because we flip a switch. 
It doesn't happen just because we as a church make a decision. The actor here is Jesus. Jesus added to their number daily. And if we want to see this sit in town, then that's going to happen through prayer, through engagement with Jesus himself, through asking him to do a work similar to that in the life of in town. And if you're here investigating, one of the best ways to do that is also through prayer. Non-Christians can pray too. You can ask Jesus to show up in your life, to deal with your skepticism, to answer your questions. Prayer is one of the central disciplines of the Christian life. It's one of the central experiences that if you become a Christian, will be a part of your life. So try it now. If you're here asking whether Jesus is real, ask him as well. They devoted themselves, first of all, to prayer, to persistence in prayer. And then secondly, they devoted themselves to meeting together in verse 6. We mentioned the two settings, the large group, the temple, but as well as in homes. And both of these are vital. And that's why we say over and over again here at InTown, if you want to belong to InTown, the best way to do that is regular devotion here on Sunday morning and regular membership and devotion in a community group. If you do nothing else, that membership here at InTown at least should suggest those two things. They devoted themselves to meeting together. And the devotion to Christ, love of Jesus, being a faithful follower, comes down vitally to those two things, at least. Then thirdly, they devoted themselves. How do we become a church that, is a, has, that believes the gospel turns us outward? Thirdly, they devoted themselves to teaching, to the apostles' teaching, to truth. Now, this sounds very contrary to this whole idea of having a low wall, because how can a community, how can a group of people that believe we have the truth have permeable, open, inviting, and welcoming boundaries? It's because we have and hope to have an utterly different relationship with truth. You see, we're, we're used to having two different types of relationships. There's, on one hand, the moralist relationship with truth, and then there's the relativist relation with truth. One has a very deep well, but a very high wall. The moralist believes that I have attained to the truth. I possess the truth, and therefore the boundary seems very high and impermeable, but there's a deep well. You see, the relativist has a low wall, but no well at all. It's very shallow. The moralist doesn't love the truth. It's not devoted to the truth. The moralist uses the truth, uses the truth to curry favor with God and to position themselves in a superior way vis-a-vis other, other people. They don't love the truth, and that type of truth won't change the world. People won't come into that type of setting. But the relativist may have a low wall, but they don't love the truth either. There's not a lot of truth there to love, to be devoted to. They would say, All religions are equally valid. All truth is a a representation of reality, but you must not oppress people. You see, we may believe with their conclusion, but their foundation is all wrong. There's no well from which to say you must not oppress people. They have a very low wall, but no well. What we want to do is different. We want to have a very low wall, a very low boundary, where it's easy to come in, It's easy to investigate, but once you get inside, you can't help but be utterly changed because the well is so deep. 
The understanding of Jesus is so rich. The one who really loves the truth, the one who is really devoted to the truth, is the one who sees themselves rather than others with the crosshairs of the truth on them. They see themselves as most prosecuted and shattered by the truth because they know what it says about them. And so there's a, a humility and authenticity within inside that community. We're not saying, look at us. We possess the truth. Become like us. No, the truth scatters and shatters us. The truth prosecutes us at a deep, deep level. So there's an authenticity and a humility. But they also know the other side of the truth. And the other side of the truth says that though you are dreadfully sinful, you are deeply and eternally loved, and I have befriended you for all of eternity. Don't you see at the center of that type of church, those that are devoted to the truth, devoted to Jesus, that truth is unfathomably larger than both the moralist truth or the relativist truth. And it's a truth that utterly humbles it's a truth that utter, utterly changes you. It makes you into an authentic person who is soft and loving, and it makes a church that has permeable, soft boundaries. We know what the boundaries are, but we don't talk about them all the time. We try to invite people through the wall and into the well. And then fourthly and finally, that the, this type of church is devoted to, it loves the breaking of bread. Why end there? We end every service with the breaking of bread. Why is this important? It's because it's a meal that completely ruins anyone that take, takes part in it, and yet at the same time it completely rebuilds you from the inside out. This table will ruin you and yet rebuild you week after week. And that was what this church was committed to is sharing this meal together, sharing this story, telling it again and again to each other, being utterly ruined by the gospel, and yet rebuilt again and again. The breaking of the bread creates a church that looks outward. It's a gospel that you can't believe it and not look outward. So much of what's happening in, in social media, <clears throat> when you look at your your uh, feed on Facebook or Twitter. I still haven't figured out Twitter, but whatever. So much of what I read is, is advertisement of something that someone loves. It's salesmanship of some experience that they've had. Whenever I have a great meal, I want to quickly go on Urban Spoon and, and talk about it. I want other people to experience what I've experienced. When we uh, went on vacation, there was all these different things that now if someone goes on vacation there, we want them to do the same things that we did. Why? Because those experiences were beautiful. Those experiences were life-changing. We cherish them. And so we want to tell others. We want others to experience that as well. You, the, what Luke is giving us here is not an evangelistic methodology, but he is saying, look at this meal. How beautiful is that? When you experience the truth that is here, you can't help but be a salesperson for it. You can't help but tell others because your experience has been so rich and so deep. Your enthusiasm becomes contagious. Friends, if you interact with the well regularly and in a real way, it will change you. 
And it will change you into people that care not first for yourself, but first for the needs of others. That your own concerns become of secondary nature. And what that means is that you will care for the person in the pew as well as the person outside. Because why? Because Jesus has cared for you so deeply and so fully. And that his love is incomprehensibly grand. And as you drink from that well, you begin to consider others. You begin to to think about how can I bring this experience into someone else's life. Let's be a church that turns outward, not because we have to, but because we can, because we understand the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you once again for this time to experience you, this time to come to your table and to be utterly ruined and yet rebuilt again. Father, just as you have utterly, you've laid our sins on Jesus and that he was utterly ruined by them and yet rebuilt and that he rose again, that he conquered death, that he conquered all of our anxiety, our worry, our fear, and our sin. Lord, we pray that that story would become real to us again, that you would give us a deep impression of the gospel and that we would be a church that cares for other people because we know that you have cared for us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.